that we've got to teach these kids the difference between right and wrong. Have you heard that before? Have you heard the kids need to learn to know the difference between what's right and wrong? And there's a measure of truth in that, but it's a little teeny tiny measure because that's not all they need to know. And so we have set as our goal as a nation, as a society, as families, we've set as our goal to teach the knowledge of good and evil. And that's actually bled over into the church as well. Did you know that? So the preachers think it's their job to teach people what's right and what's wrong with regards to behavior, emotions, everyday life. And we think that if we've done that, if I can give you the knowledge of good and evil, of right and wrong, that somehow, miraculously, you're going to do what's right and not do what's wrong according to your own power with your own knowledge of what's right and wrong. The only problem with that, folks, is it doesn't work. It never has worked. That's why God warned His first two kids well, initially he warned the first one, Adam, and then Adam warned the second one, Eve. You are at liberty to eat all these many trees in the garden. All this I've prepared for you to satisfy your needs. But there's one tree in the middle of the garden that I don't want you to eat it. Because in the day you eat thereof, you will die. And what was that tree? It was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a tree that produced the fruit that gave you the understanding of what was right and what was wrong. Now, God did that for a specific reason, you know. He wasn't withholding something that was really necessary for them. No, He, he gave them everything. Everything they possibly could want or need. But He told them, I don't want you to eat that because in the day you eat of it, you will know right and wrong the hard way. You know what I mean by that? You will come to the conclusion that you are not right and that you are continually wrong. And that will kill you. It will kill you. Now, when Adam ate, God held him responsible. The man is always responsible. When Eve ate, nothing happened. 
So she turned to her husband, gave it to him. And he, seeing that she didn't drop over dead, said, oh, maybe this will work. Following the leadership of his wife, he ate. And then it happened. The eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked. What's the big deal about that? They knew they were naked. What is it, what's he trying to tell us about that? They were embarrassed. They were helpless. They were powerless. They had begun to die personally. The moment Adam ate. Feeling for the first time terrified, fear, anxiety, guilt, shame, all those negative emotions we feel. Their eyes were open, they knew they were naked, they were not acceptable unto God. And so, what they do? They hid themselves from God. They pretended that God couldn't see what was going on. God came to meet with them in the cool of the evening in the garden. And they were hiding. So God called out, Adam, where are you? Now, he wasn't playing hide and seek with Adam. All right? He knew full well where Adam was. He knew Adam was naked, ashamed, and afraid, and hiding behind a bush. He created. He already knew that. So why did he call out, Adam, where are you? He called him out so Adam would figure out where he was. He said, have you eaten the fruit that I told you not to eat? Have you been focusing your life on the knowledge of good and evil? Have you been all wrapped up in trying to keep the rules, learn the rules, and keep the rules? Adam didn't even confess to that. He immediately blamed his wife, Eve. Does that sound familiar, guys? Yeah. Ladies, does that sound familiar? Any bad problem happens, it's the woman's fault. Right? The woman you gave me, she gave me an identity. So not only did he die a personal death, and he took that knowledge of good and evil, but he also died a relational death by throwing his own wife under the bus. So God turns to Eve and says, what's this you've done? Following Adam's example of blame shifting, she said, the smart snake you made is his fault. You see, what happened from that point on in humanity went downhill quickly. Now, if that's where all our problems began, whether it be on a personal level, feeling worthless, feeling ashamed, feeling unimportant, feeling insecure, or whether it be on a relational level, getting mad at folks and hating them, who don't meet up your expectations, who don't follow the rules, 
Boy, that pisses us off, doesn't it? If somebody doesn't follow the rules, ooh, ooh, ooh. We gotta jump on them with both feet. Whether it be on a social level, a societal level, where the ultimate cumulative results of that is the death called incarceration or institutionalization, a diasocial death. And society says, you're too weird to be around us. We don't want you around us. We're going to put you away. You see, there's an avalanche of death that took place the moment Adam ate, which Paul describes in Romans chapter 5 as, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and the wages of sin is, anybody know? Death. Where did all this dysfunction come from? Where did all this craziness come from? It's the natural wages of sin. And so, right from the very outset, right from the very start, we have been conditioned as the natural descendants and children of Adam to try to learn the rules and figure out what we can get away with. Because after all, when you really begin to study the rules, you soon learn that you can't keep them. No, you can't. I illustrate this in a lot of classes by asking my students, I say, hey, if you're going to save yourself by keeping the rules according to your knowledge and good and evil, let's start with the core rules God gave us when he announced the law through Moses at Mount Sinai. Let's start with that. Never mind the statutes and ordinances and all the little ceremonial laws necessarily. Let's just stay with the Ten Commandments. If you think that your knowledge of the Ten Commandments and your effort to do what they command you to do or not do what they tell you not to do is going to earn you God's blessings and satisfy you. You've got a rude awakening coming. It's at that point, usually I ask them, ask for a volunteer. Can anybody quote the Ten Commandments to me? Of course, I've got very few volunteers for that. But even if you know what they are, can you live them? Can you do them? I mean, you might slide, you know, on the outside saying you have no other gods but God. Right? Until you look at your checkbook and you see what you spend your time, energy, and money on. You say, oh, maybe that's God. But you might slide through that because you can rationalize, justify, Excuse yourself. But when you get down to that last command, that last one, that's why Paul chose it to use in Romans 7, 
then it's a different story. Most people don't remember what the last of the Ten Commandments is, the last one. So I'll tell it to you. Thou shalt not covet. What does that mean? Essentially it means thou shalt be happy with what you've got and not bitch about it. What? See, the companion commandment in the New Testament, my favorite command in the New Testament, Philippians 2.14, do all things without murmuring and disputing. That means live your life every day without complaining and bitching and moaning about everything that's going on around you that you don't like. And just try to live your life one day without complaining about something. You see, just because we know what's right doesn't mean we can do it. And just because we know what's wrong doesn't mean we can keep ourselves from doing it. And yet, that's what we've been conditioned by. It's that idea that all of us have been conditioned with to save ourselves. Just tell me what the rules are. I'll keep the rules. Now that conditioning kills us. That's the knowledge of good and evil. It will destroy you. When you live your life according to your knowledge of good and evil, you will never feel secure and significant. You will never experience a true sense of worth as a person. When you live your life according to the knowledge of what's right and wrong and try to keep all the rules, you will never be able to engage in healthy relationships. You will always frustrate yourself and piss off everybody around you. When you live your life according to your knowledge of what's good and evil, you will never make an impact that's positive in the society you live in. You can't. That's the natural lifestyle we were born in. That's the natural lifestyle we were raised up in. And it becomes so natural to our thinking that we judge everything according to that. Just tell me what's right and wrong. And any situation happens, there's some tragedy, and I get frustrated listening to it on the news. That's why I don't watch the news anymore. There's some tragic thing that happens on the news. What's the big question of all the talking heads? Whose fault is it? Who do we blame for this? What are the rules? That's what tickles me about this gun control crap. Well, let's make up another rule. Another rule that's going to protect people. You can't protect people with rules. It never has worked. It never will work. That lifestyle of law and lies is a dangerous lifestyle. 
I know by my own personal experience. I grew up in it. That's how I was raised. With a religious flavor on it. That says, you do this, you'll be right. You do that, you'll be wrong. And so my whole focus in growing up was to learn what's right and wrong. With the basic assumption that if I knew what was right and wrong, I could do what was right and not do what was wrong. But it didn't work. I even went to Bible college. Went to cemetery. No, I mean seminary. To learn the rules. What, were, what was right and what was wrong. And to learn how to tell people about those rules. What's right and what's wrong. With the assumption that if I told you what's right and told you what was wrong, you would do what's right and not do what's wrong. You talk about fantasy. I quickly learned that didn't work. It didn't work on me and sure didn't work on anybody else. So early on in my ministry, I began looking for something. Something that would be pleasing to God. A way to live that would be pleasing to God and satisfying to me. That's what I was looking for. And I knew it was missing. Man, there's, there's something missing here. Well, I had a lot of Bible knowledge. I had a whole list of rules and regulations of what good Christians ought to do and what good Christians ought not to do to be a good Christian. Now they varied, you know, those things vary from time to time and from generation to generation and society to society, but there were rules that I was living by. And it wasn't satisfying at all. I never got to the point where I considered myself a good Christian. Did you know that? Because there was always that one little area that was wrong in my life that I thought, hmm, I'll just cover that up like kitty litter and pretend it's not there and maybe it'll go away. But it didn't. See, you can't live a healthy, functional, satisfying life under your normal lifestyle of what's right and wrong, of law and lies. You can't live that way. All that produces is death. It's like we studied last week of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So what kind of lifestyle are we looking at living in? If that's a lifestyle that will kill you, what's a healthy lifestyle look like? Well, this lifestyle I call a lifestyle of grace and truth. That's a way of living that I just named grace and truth. And the reason I did that is because of what John records in his gospel in the very first chapter when he says, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus. What does that mean? See, I began to study that more 
in depth, and I began to see that what he was talking about there was not just an attribute of God, grace and truth, but it was actually a lifestyle, a way you live your everyday life. Grace and truth. So it was a lifestyle just like Jesus lived. Now John later wrote, a couple verses later, he said, and of His fullness we have all received. What does he mean by that? Now he's talking particularly to believers and he's saying, look, when you believed on Jesus, you got all of Jesus. The fullness. You became one with Him. So that what's true of Him is true of you. And of His fullness we've all received and grace for grace. What does that mean? That means that God, and I'm just going to give you the short version here, I don't want to take time on it, but God has given you already, right now, He has given you the grace you need to live this new lifestyle of grace and truth. And to get out of that old lifestyle that's killing you of law and lies. God's given you the grace already to live just like Jesus. Now let that sink in for a minute. He has already given you His supernatural power and grace working in you to cause you to live just like Jesus lived. And I know that still sounds a little bit far-fetched and hard for us to grasp. So let me see if I can break that down a little further for you. What God has done is to give you not only His mercy, but also His grace. Now remember, there two completely different things, mercy and grace. Most people have a tendency to confuse those two. So let me make it clear. Mercy is when you do or say what's wrong. Not just according to your law, but according to God's law. When you say or do what's wrong and God withholds his punishment of immediate death. When God withholds that punishment, even though you deserve it, He's giving you mercy. I love mercy. Mercy is great, isn't it? And His mercies are renewed every day. It's almost like He's giving you time to get your thoughts right. That's mercy. And that's great. And it's wonderful. But it is not grace. Well, what's grace then? People define it as undeserved favor. You don't deserve it, but God blesses you. You don't deserve it, but God accepts you, etc., etc. And that's good as far as it goes. It is, in fact, undeserved favor. However, Grace is much more involved than just God's attitude towards you. 
grace is active in you through His Spirit that He has given you. Indwelling that new person He made you to be, God is continually at work in you both to want to do and to do His good pleasure. Like Paul told Philippians, he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will, want to do, and to do His good pleasure. Now, grace is a supernatural way that God makes you behave. Did you know that? You know, when I look around and I see the mistakes people make, especially the older I get, I see some of the really dumb things people do. I thank God. I thank God that I didn't do that. You know why I thank God I didn't do that? Because if it wasn't for Him, I would have done that very thing. If it wasn't for His grace, I would screw up as bad as anybody else in this world. What keeps me from that is not my knowledge of good and evil. What keeps me from that is not my own abilities. What keeps me from that is His grace working in me. So grace is a miraculous power of God working in you to conform you to the image of His Son, Jesus. To make you just like Jesus. Now the lifestyle of grace and truth then is radically different than the one we're used to, than the normal lifestyle we're used to because we are used to a lifestyle of figuring out what's right and wrong and then trying hard to do what's right and not do what's wrong. That's what the lifestyle we're used to. That's not the lifestyle that we're talking about. We're talking about a radically different lifestyle and that's why I call it walking while you live your life backwards because you're not living according to the normal lifestyle you're living your life according to the supernatural lifestyle of grace and truth now we're going to talk a lot more about that in terms of how that works out in our everyday lives as we go on in our study but this morning I, I want you to be well aware of how God's New lifestyle of grace and truth works to take care of your sin problem. Did you know you had a sin problem? Well, you got two sin. You got a sin problem in two ways. Number one, you were born into it. You were born selfish and self self centered, and you were naturally born into sin. That's why Jesus said, of course. You need to be born again. And so when you're born again from the Spirit, you are spiritually a new person created in Christ Jesus, a brand new person. And why did He do that? So that you could actually live out this new lifestyle of grace and truth. That's the reason you were born again. You were born again to live a new lifestyle of grace and truth, just like Jesus. Exactly like Him. And so, what He does when we're born again is an amazing 
miraculous thing that I want to read a few verses to you about right here out of Ephesians chapter 2 and connect it to this lifestyle of walking backwards. Verse 1, he says, In you hath he quickened. What does that mean? Hath he quickened. You who he has made alive. That's an old English word, quickened. It simply means made alive. You, as he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, the conditioning of the world we were just talking about, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan and his designs, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation or our lifestyle in times past. In the lust of our flesh, doing whatever we felt like doing, the lust of our flesh, and of the mind, and thinking up stuff that might work, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, but God. See, here's our natural condition, that natural lifestyle. But God. Listen to what God did about that. But God, who is rich in mercy, and we're talking about His mercy, for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, have quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. Do you hear what he's saying here? You were naturally born into this dysfunctional lifestyle of law and lies. And you were conditioned your whole life in that and you didn't know any better. But God. God's done something for you that you couldn't do for yourself. He took that person that was dead in sins and He made that person alive in Christ. How did He do that? In Romans 6, He gives us a breakdown on how that happened by saying that when Jesus died on the cross, that person you were born into this world as was crucified with Him. Put to death once and for all. Buried with Him. But when Jesus rose again from the dead, he made you a brand new person and raised you up with Him. You're no longer the same person you always thought you were. You're now a brand new person that God has made. Listen to how He describes it here. He says, Even when we were dead and sins hath quickened us, made us alive together with Christ, by grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You all get that picture? Is that clear to you? What God did? He created you a brand new person and He joined you inseparably to Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, and when He raised Jesus from the dead, He raised that brand new person you are up with Jesus, made Him alive with the life of Christ, 
and you are caused to sit together in the heavenlies. In heaven. I know that's hard to believe because here you are sitting in the church in the woods and over children. But according to the scriptures, you've been seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. That's the real person you are. So this new lifestyle that we're talking about has its roots in what God has done to bring you out of that old lifestyle, make you a brand new person, and give you a brand new life to live. Radical change from the inside out. And that's what we're trying to study. Now, the difficult thing about that is what we describe as this new lifestyle in grace and truth is so backwards to what's normal to us. It's so backwards to the way we've been conditioned, we can't hardly believe it. It's so backwards. Like Romans 6, for example. Worried about the problem of sin. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. May it never be. How shall we, listen to this question, how shall we, that's all of us, how shall we who are dead to sin continue to live any longer there? You can't. Why? You're dead. Now how does that fit your experience? Hmm? So no, I'm not dead. I'm alive. Look, I'm walking around. I'm talking. I'm breathing. I'm alive. I'm not dead. That person that you've always thought you were, that person that you tried to clean up according to your knowledge of good and evil, that person that you were born into this world as, that person living inside this body was crucified with Christ, buried, and a new person raised up to take its place. That's what's actually happened to you already. Now, I know when I tell people that, they look at me like I'm crazy because nobody believes that. But here's the reality. That brand new person you are has a brand new lifestyle open to it now. A brand new lifestyle of grace and truth. Something died back there. I told you you were dead to sin. Now you're dead to sound. Yeah, I know. I heard it go off back there. You were dead to sin, but now you're dead to sound. I don't know if that means we ought to quit or not. For those of you who are listening on this podcast, the power just went out. Thankfully, my phone is still working. Well, it's almost out of power, but it's still working. Anyhow, let me finish this up with or without this board. Here's the point. The point is, God has already done for you everything that needs to be done. Everything. He has made you a brand new person that He loves. You are special to Him. He goes on in Ephesians 2 there to say, You are His workmanship. You are the ones that create. He created it. His workmanship created in righteousness.
righteousness and true holiness. You are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. What are those good works? Don't give me a list of uh, things that you know according to your knowledge of good and evil. A list of works that you ought to do. They're good works. No, that's not what he's talking about. The good works that he's talking about in Ephesians 2.10 is the pleasurable service that he has laid out for you. It's the happiest service you can do. It's what's going to make you the happiest. Why? Because that's who you are. See, God created you in Christ Jesus to be Christ as you. That's what God did. He's already done it. There's no effort on your part to be a good Christian. You can't be any better than the one God made. You're as good a Christian right now as you'll ever get. He has created you and ordained that you live out this new lifestyle of pleasurable service, good works. What does that mean? It means simply you're going to be happy. You're going to be satisfied. You're going to be happy in what God is using you to do, to go, to be, to say in this new lifestyle. It's the best lifestyle you could ever live. It's the most joyous, most exciting, happiest lifestyle you'll ever know. That's what God has planned for you. That's the good works which He ordained that you should walk in them. Now note, these good works are totally backwards. Alright. We'll just check this one workout and we'll quit on this. Alright? Somebody offends you. They say something against you. They trash you. They hurt you in some way. The good work God has for you in that situation, the pleasurable work, the pleasurable service is to forgive them. You say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not fun to me. I don't want to forgive them. I want to choke them. I don't want to forgive them. I want to kill them. I want to cause them pain. The new person God made you to be doesn't want to do that. You know why? Because the new person God made you to be knows that you're okay and that that offense didn't bother you at all. It didn't threaten your security. It didn't threaten your significance. You're still the same person you always were that He made. So that you have the ability, the supernatural ability and the grace of God to say, Father, forgive them because they're idiots. They don't know what they're doing. How backwards is that? Hmm? See, Jesus lived His life that way. Is an exciting and powerful lifestyle. That's what we're trying to figure out. Again, I'm going to remind you, I'm not going to be giving you a list of things to do or say to live out this new lifestyle of walking backwards. No. 
That's not the way it works. God creates ethics. God is the one that tells you what he wants you to do. Not me. That's an important thing we're going to come back to in future studies about how we actually learn to listen to God just like Jesus did in everything we do and say. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, as we come in your presence right now, I thank you. I praise you for the opportunity we have to live like your son Jesus, to walk out a lifestyle of grace and truth. I ask you to continue to teach us by your spirit. That's the only you can do. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.